You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, books, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. This is an outlier episode that I'm really excited about. I got to sit down with Ryan Raffaelli of Harvard Business School to talk about his research on the independent bookstore industry. Ryan is an assistant professor in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School, who studies how mature organizations and industries faced with technological change reinvent themselves. His study on independent bookselling includes more than 200 interviews and focus groups with bookstore owners, publishers, and prominent authors, field visits to dozens of bookstores in 13 states, 91 hours of observing bookstore activity and industry conferences, and an analysis of 915 newspaper and trade publication articles that mentioned independent bookselling in some fashion. He even attended a training course on how to open an independent bookstore. We talk about it all, and he shares some amazing insights. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the conversation. I'm really excited to talk to you, Ryan. This is really great. Before I jump into the questions, though, you're you're a professor uh, who studies um, organizational, or you teach organizational behavior at Harvard Business School. And um, I read that one of the things that you you study, or kind of the focus of your study, is how mature organizations and industries faced with technological change reinvent themselves. Which brings us to independent bookstores. What got you interested in bookstores in the first place? So this project is uh, part of a series of several projects that I've been doing where I've been looking at these mature industries that have seen often years and years of success. And what often happens is, is they face either a large technological shock or a business model change that threatens the very existence of what made them successful. And what often happens during these processes is uh, individual organizations and also industry associations and others who were attached to this past have to make some tough decisions about ultimately what do we hold on to versus what do we let go of if we're going to survive and thrive into the future. What about bookstores made you want to make it the, the focus of your research like as opposed to other, other brick-and-mortar stores? What attracted you to bookstores? Well, so this uh, idea really came about because of the fact that the bookstores are a story of hope. Uh, you know, as we think about what's going on in brick-and-mortar retail today, the words like retail apocalypse, uh, so many of these ideas have been batted around. And I think for a lot of bricks-and-mortar, if we look at what's happening with the traditional mall There's a lot of stories to point at that consumer buying behaviors are changing substantially in a world of e-commerce and online shopping. And it's a world where consumers are having to make a set of decisions that prioritize different elements of their buying experience against others, such as, do I need to see the product? Do I want to experience the, the storefront? Or is this something that I can buy based on really price and availability through an Amazon one-click. And so the bookstores came to me because of the fact that here you had so many other forms of bricks and mortar 
struggling with these questions. And what you see going back over the last really 10 or so years is a fundamental shift in the way in which the independent bookselling community began to reposition and to my surprise, uh, certainly not to the surprise of many independent booksellers in the country because they've been ahead of the curve, I think, on this sort of anticipating how to respond to a threat like Amazon. But from an outsider's point of view, uh, this was a very interesting place to start and try to unpack, is there a potential secret or a recipe to compete with Amazon on a completely set of, set of new dimensions? Get into the weeds for me just a little bit. So you decide that you're going to study this cohort of retail. H- how did you go about putting your research together? What was, what was your process? How did you assemble, um, just kind of like, like take us from idea to execution in a, as summarized form as you can, just so people that, even researchers out there that are thinking about putting together a plan like this, like what are, what are some things, what are some key steps that you, that you took to make this come to life? So I have a a method that we often talk about is this notion of ethnography. And you can think of this almost like being trained as an anthropologist for business. And so a lot of the industries that I'll study, I'll embed myself in that industry from anywhere from three to five or six or seven years so that I can understand every single aspect of what is it like, at least at from an outsider's perspective, nowhere obviously to the level of somebody who's been living it for several decades. But what this gives me is an opportunity to look at the industry through several dimensions of observing what's happening in stores, um, conducting interviews. So to give you some context for this study, um, I've now interviewed uh, a little over 250 booksellers. I go to Winter Institute several, uh, many years I've gone there. So for folks uh, that are associated with the industry, you know that this is where independent booksellers start coming together once a year. You also have the regional uh, conferences that are taking place where indie booksellers are coming together. In addition to doing a lot of these interviews and uh, visiting, I've now been in uh, almost 100 stores, and I think I'm now over 20 different U.S. states where I've been in physical stores. In addition to that, a study like this, it also requires that you try to make sense of what's happening over time. And so a way that uh, I do this is I've coded every article that was mentioned in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, AP, and then also uh, Publishers Weekly that mention the words, for example, independent or indie bookseller. And so what this does is that it gives me a chance to code and try to understand shifts and trends and patterns over time over the last 20 or so years of how not only indies are beginning to redefine themselves at different stages in this process, but also how the larger publishing and other actors in this world are trying to make sense of the anomaly of what is it about this group that's allowing them to compete in ways that may have looked different at different stages as we've evolved. So what is it about them? What is it about bookstores that have this anomaly that's allowed them to be this outlier species of successful retail businesses. What did you find in your research? So I think there's several things that are important and important lessons not only for the bookselling community that I've unearthed, but, you know, it's important to remember the challenges that booksellers faced, particularly in the 90s, because Amazon started with selling books, 
the booksellers were some of the first to try to make sense of how do you compete in this world in a way that now several other industries are just starting to wake up and realize as Amazon moves into those spaces, how do you do that? And so there's a couple things that you see happening with booksellers. And what you begin to really understand is I talk about these these three C's that in some ways define the reinvention process that happens with the booksellers. And at a very sort of high level, you see them, first of all, trying to understand how do we reconnect on a very authentic level to our local communities. And so this notion of localism, I believe, is critical to actually helping the booksellers begin to separate themselves in a way both from Amazon, but also differentiate themselves and create uh, a very clear identity amongst themselves across the entire sector. So the idea that the bookseller is so fundamentally tied to uh, the interests and what we care about in the community, and this is very much locally based. You know, I've been in bookstores, uh, for example, whether it be in California, New York, here in Boston, I've been in Alaska. You walk into these stores and each one looks so totally different in the sense of they're so tuned in to the local tastes of what is it that the consumer is looking for there. But then when you step back, you realize that as a whole, there's something going on that's actually quite unique but also similar across all these stores. And to me, that's sort of this puzzle. Uh, And the recipe behind this is that on one end, you have this high level of local um, understanding, but at the other end, a consumer walks in and realizes that when they get into an independent bookstore, they're going to see things and get things that are actually quite different than if they went in, say, even to a Barnes & Noble, another bricks and mortar, or certainly um, how they're experiencing what's going on in Amazon in terms of what they get. And so this first notion is community. The second one is attach this around what I call curation. You begin to realize that how we go how these booksellers go about sourcing and figuring out what should be in the store is very very much something that can't always be solved by an algorithm and so as you watch these booksellers do the sort of hand selling that the greats do you know watching a great bookseller hand sell uh, a book this this notion of you know a customer walks in and you say tell me the last three or four books that you've read, and then they push them into a genre that they never would have thought or certainly a logarithm wouldn't have given. I mean, to watch that happen and to see a customer walk out with a totally different sense of this is my next big read and then come back and say, I would have never gone there if you hadn't moved me. There's something quite unique and special about what's happening at the local level in these indie bookstores that I think these great booksellers have figured out how to do this successfully. The third dimension that I talk about is this idea of convening. And really this goes back to the notion that the bookseller is a place where people can come together. This goes back to the early days of Benjamin Franklin's reading groups, right? And so um, certainly there's been others that have talked about this across the country, the the third place notion, even the idea of the third place books. I mean, this whole idea of convening I think is critical. And it's critical for several dimensions if you step back because it's one of the strong differentiators from the perspective of creating a a consumer experience that's actually quite hard to replicate for a competitor like Amazon. I think that's why you're starting to see Amazon coming into the bricks and mortar book selling is trying to figure out what is it about this notion of convening that they could potentially use to help better understand their consumer, but also uh, to have a footprint in the community. I don't know if they're going to be as successful as these indies have been because of the fact that the indies 
clearly have this link to authenticity that I think is very hard to replicate. Sure. Actually, you segue beautifully to a question I don't even have to ask you now. I was going to get your take on why Amazon uh, went and put a, a retail footprint on in, in, on in all of these cities. And, and you're saying that it's partially because of they want to try to tap into this notion of convening. I think that there may be a dimension that it's hard to say. I actually think the primary reason why you're seeing Amazon in uh, the bricks and mortar space, also why you see them buying franchise like Whole Foods is, is that having a physical footprint in a local geography has value beyond just the products that they're selling. It becomes a place where uh, consumers can uh, bring goods back for potentially returns. It's also a data play. I think this is one of the key things is, you know, Amazon is lives and breathes on data. And so the more they can understand the crossover effects of the online versus the bricks and mortar. And the, I think the other thing that they're doing, particularly with the Amazon bookstores, is they're using as a place to showroom some other high-margin products like the Fire or Alexa or the Echo, things like this that um, if you go into these stores, you notice there's a significant amount of retail space being devoted to helping consumers understand these things. So in some ways, I think it's distinct. My concern is is that for indies, uh, one of the, the huge competitive positions that I believe that they have is this deep-rooted uh, relationship with the author community that feeds a lot of these convening events. You know, authors are so, so much tied to the indies and very much want to support them because in many cases, the indies ga- give up-and-coming authors their start. You know, I often point to the fact that so many authors that I've interviewed have talked to the fact that some in their early days as as a new author and independent allowed them to come share a book or you know a new book and this was actually an early imprinting that really helped them get their foot on the ground i think indies also because of this relationship with the author community can create events in a ways that are actually quite unique if amazon somehow begins to able to own that author relationship in my mind that's a real threat yeah yeah how is the buy local movement going today? Can you speak to the trends or momentum one way or the other? So the buy local movement today, I think what we're seeing is that it's expanding on several dimensions. So what I mean by that is in many communities, the independents, particularly the independent bookstore owners, were some of the first to really help organize and create uh, this notion of why you should buy local, what does it mean to shop local, the importance of how much money comes back to your community if you're buying and shopping local. For many, many geographic regions, it was the bookstore owners that were leading the charge on that message. I think today what we're seeing is is that there's an expansion of this across multiple platforms. And so What we're beginning to see is that it's not just the bookstores and the toy stores or the hardware stores or the pharmacies. This this notion of how do we all work together to create a concerted effort to think about when the consumer walks in, it's not just one product segment, but actually together as the consumer starts realizing that it's actually all of these different types of products, um, if you can support them, I think it's quite important. You know, the other dimension of this that I've seen a lot with uh, the consumers is is that this also becomes – this notion of localism becomes a notion of their own sense of who they are or their own identity. I think this is really important for so many people that are in – living in our communities today. 
you know, they're looking for an authentic connection to uh, not just, you know, schools and libraries, but also to other aspects that make the community real. And I think that the shop local movement is for a large and growing segment of the population key to preserving a sense of how they want to see themselves as members of their community. When I first reached out to you uh, several months ago, you mentioned that you were working on a second piece or a second paper on this topic. And, and my question is, fill in the middle space. So the first the first piece came out and then you've released the second part of that. What became of that? Like what changes or what positives do you see for the industry? And what are some things that you see in the industry that may be a little concerning to you? So about a year ago, I put out uh, some early data about some of the, the trends that I was seeing with particularly the archival analysis that I've done across all these different media sources and how the message that has changed over time uh, about how indies have presented themselves but also how the larger popular press has tried to make sense of the independent bookselling sector, often getting it wrong uh, for, you know, if you look at most, you know, bylines of major newspapers today, when you see a bookstore opening, uh, they'll often start by saying everybody thought the bookstore was dead. But if, you know, you talk to most bookstore owners, there's a large population that says, wait a minute, we've been growing since 2009. And so it's an, it's an interesting and easy way to, to kick off stories. So uh, what I'm doing now is actually uh, releasing, hopefully in this next year, uh, the full part of that. It's not really a second component. Um, a study like this, you know, it Got takes it. several years to put yeah. all the pieces together. <clears throat> that makes sense. There's this idea, and you mentioned it earlier, about a curated experience. And I read something in one of the articles that you were mentioned in. There's this, quote, curated experience that's hypersensitive to the customers in that community. Do you have any insights on how new or existing indies can be successful at creating this alchemy, if you will? One thing that I think I've been so amazed and impressed as I've done this study is it's often linked to the deep connections that the independents have with their consumer that most big boxes would die for. You know, the fact is, is that the successful independent booksellers, often their success starts with the fact that the consumers take ownership in the bookstore's success. So I was just in Ithaca uh, last week and was in a bookstore there where uh, the bookstore is owned as a co-op, and several, several of the you know members of the community have band together, and you can buy you can buy membership into uh, being a bookstore. And in fact, the bumper sticker that they give you is you know I own a bookstore. But I think this is actually more than just sort of substantive there, but it's actually symbolic of what I've seen across the industry, and the consumer of the independent bookseller, I think, is one who is not only deeply committed to the bookstore's success, they're deeply committed to wanting to have a larger conversation with like-minded people about ideas that are important to that community. And so the bookstore is the place to do that. And the great bookstores, I think, across the country become the places where that can happen. And so one of the things that I think a lot of other bricks and mortars are trying to figure out is how do they create that space for the consumers to have an experience where they feel like they're co-creating it with them. And that's certainly, I think, a lesson for others that um, the bookstores have certainly taught and are teaching the rest of us. 
Well said. You know, you mentioned this co-op model. I talked to a bookstore in Chicago, Seminary Co-op, that's a similar sort of uh, uh, hierarchical structure of like the, the people kind of own a piece of the store. It's an interesting model. You know, the 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 fascinating part about this resurgence is, is that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to how do you save and in sure. su- in resurrect an industry. So you're saying several different organizational forms emerge as part of this resurgence. And it's important to note that, you know, from 2009 to today, there's almost a 40%, over 40% num- growth in the number of, of bookstores across the country. And they're I think part of the success is they don't all look the same, but what you do see is you see a common value system that clearly anchors when booksellers come together. There's a set of values that you hear them no matter where you are in the country talking about in terms of preserving community, wanting to have deep roots in that community, standing for um, creating space for ideas to be discussed and debated. These sorts of higher-order values I think are what – have been sort of the the recipe behind all then the different variants across these different local communities. One more question before I do a quick lightning round to wrap things up. Is there anything you have found that bookstores should be doing more of? Or put another way, are, are there things that bookstores should be doing that in some instances they currently aren't doing? So one of the things that I've I try to ask a lot of booksellers to do is is that the challenge for the segment as a whole right now is is that there's actually quite there's actually very little data that allows us to look at how successful the whole segment is doing and so from a very practical standpoint if an organization like the American Booksellers Association asks you to fill out a survey about how your sales are, how are you doing, how many titles do you have in your store, fill those out because that's actually the way that in other industries that I've seen where you have an industry association like the ABA come in, I've seen this in other industries, when they can collect that sort of data on a more macro level, that's actually the greatest way that that an industry can respond to potential threats coming from outsiders before they become significant threats. And so if there's one thing I would say is uh, if you're a bookseller, um, you've got to fill out these surveys because it's it's the most important thing that I think for the category to survive you can do. What are you reading right now? So I'm reading, uh, let me see, I've just finished uh, several books preparing for the election, which is always fascinating. And I'm just trying to get a sense for, you know, where are we out there in terms of where does the electorate look like? Um, One of the recent books that I read that was sort of kind of fun to read was I just read A Spy Among Friends by Ben McIntyre, about Kim Felby, a really interesting book about, you know, the old world, MI5, MI6. I've done several studies on the FBI, so I thought, oh, this would be fascinating. Recently, I read Shoe Dog. uh, Oh, great book. Great book by Phil Knight. Isn't it so interesting? I didn't mean to cut you off, but isn't it so interesting how he came up with the name at the at the last minute, at the eleventh hour? I thought that was fascinating. You know, the the whole book in my mind is so interesting because it taps into this notion of what does it mean to be an entrepreneur. What you begin to realize is that entrepreneurship looks so different, and that's I think the exciting part about it. And the idea that you know here he is, he's flying, you know, to Japan in those early days, just trying to to win these contracts. 
you know, it's a fun book to read. But, you know, books like that, I love I love all the work by, you know, A Gentleman in Moscow. It's another book that I just finished the last cu- uh, couple months ago. Talk about a, just a terrific book about historical fiction, about what goes on about this gentleman, you know, locked away in his hotel. So, you know, I'm sort of an eclectic reader. How do you decide what to read? Uh, what, are, what are some of your filters? Well, I have the greatest access of anyone because I'm in all these bookstores. So <laughs> we basically play out the hand-selling process. We, you know, I have the conversation with booksellers and I say, uh, here's my last four or five books. What should I do next? And as a result, that's why you see me spanning all these different genres because it's it's something I can't do on Amazon. You know, I'll put in my... Uh, my reading list in there, and they'll sort of give me something in a in a common category. But I think that's also what makes the the indie experience so unique is is that I can go in and and they'll say, "Have you thought about this one?" Uh, you know, here's an example. I had just finished, and a bookseller said, "You got to read Old Filth. That's a great book." You know, then I says, "I never looked at that." You know, the whole trilogy of the Old Filth trilogy. I, I, you know, I read this. So. I think this is one of the things that the booksellers, they've just dominated relative to the com- to their competitors is that uh, you walk into these stores when you're with some of the greats in terms of how to pick your next book. It's, it's unparalleled. No one can touch them yet. I don't want to get you in any trouble, but can you name some of your favorite bookstores out there today? Oh, that's, that's one I, I get in trouble. But I'll tell you because um, – <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I do, I, it's really hard for me to say because my favorite bookstores. I think that's actually what makes the category so strong is is that we all have our different favorites, and it's unlike other industries that I've studied where you might go in and say, "Oh, these are the top five that you have to see," but this is actually part of the secret of the independent bookseller's success is that it's actually highly tailored to uh, a local community's taste function. So I think that, you know, as I've asked people this question around the country, I rarely get the same group of, you know, five or six answers. That's interesting. Yeah, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just I just like to hear where people spend their time when they have off time. A couple more quick ones. What book have you recommended or gifted the most to people? So I teach a lot of courses on uh, managing change, and also I do a lot of work on innovation and change. And so there's a book that I recommend often about uh, Alan Mulally's turnaround of both Boeing and Ford. It's called American Icon. I think it's a fantastic book of how to think about transforming an organization because, you know, Alan Mulally is an executive where rarely do we see someone who comes in and can transform two such substantial uh, organizations. And you know, it's it's a book that's uh, written certainly very in a very positive form for uh, Mr. Mullally, and it's written by a former uh, you know Detroit reporter. And I even tell students and executives that come to the Harvard Business School, I say, even if uh, a third of this is not true, it's still a formula that I think is quite quite actually real for how to think about turning around an organization. I say, still follow it. <laughs> Right. Alan Mulally, of course, is the CEO or former CEO of Boeing and then uh, Ford, correct? And then came in to turn around Ford, yeah, and and did yeah. both successfully, yeah. I also recommend Boys in the Boat a lot. I think this is like a fantastic book about, you know, uh, what does it mean to just stay on course? <laughs> you know, so much of our, yeah, I think for yeah. so much of us, you know, staying persistent and bringing a team along with you is half of the challenge of of turning around organizations. And so Boys in the Boat is another one that I, that I 
regularly recommend. Finally, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? So the best place to find out about me is probably on Twitter. You can look me up there, and I'm sure you can provide a link. It's Ryan L. Raffaelli. I'm happy to talk to you more about it. Uh, you can follow my research on what I call technology reemergence there, which looks at many different sectors that have seen large technological shocks and are trying to figure out ways to survive and thrive. Ryan, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Vic. Take care. You too. You've been listening to Book Stories. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Book Stories is an Alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Tate for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening. 